Welcome to the Fish Cast. This week on the Fish Cast, we make a road trip to the UCF 7-on-7 and the Mega Camp in Tallahassee. It is great to be back on the road. The Seminoles also snuck in an elite camp on Saturday night. In segment two, we discuss Power 5 coaching rankings. Where do the coaches rank? Do we agree or disagree? Our panel gets after it, and we hope you enjoy it. My friends, welcome to the Fish Cast. My name is Corey Long. I'm your host. I am a college football recruiting evaluator for WalterFootball.com. Joined by the man with the plan, the man behind all this, Charles Fishbine. How you doing, Fish? I'm rejuvenated, man. I was worn out the other day. I couldn't have done this on Sunday. I can promise you that. Yeah, we're going to talk a little about your road trip and. Joined as always by well-traveled college coach who's also been hitting the road, Christopher Demarest. Tell us where you've been, Demo. Corey, just Demo's good. Just old Demo is all I am. But no, listen, I've been talking to a lot of coaches and they want to come on our show. So I think we're going to have some really good guests coming up. So I hope these people stay tuned. Yeah, that sounds pretty exciting. Excited to hear that. We're going to come out and box hot today. Um, Fish, we're going to talk about your road trip. Uh, you went to the UCF 7-on-7. Seven seven. We're going to come to back to that in a second. We're going to start off with you heading up to the FSU Mega Camp. Um, you and I had lunch on Monday. You told me there were just schools everywhere. You said there were about 20, 2,500, excuse me, about 2,500. I've heard estimates up to 3,000. Just give me your impressions of the camp overall. You know, it was, I thought they did a great job of uh, getting a lot of kids there. Um, the night before they did these uh, elite camp, they kind of didn't tell many people about it. And then Saturday night, they had probably 20 to 30 uh, of the top defense alignment at the camp. They had uh, some of the top defensive backs. They had top quarterbacks, uh, some commitments like Aaron Hester and also Lamont Green Jr., um, it was, it was a great camp. And then to follow it up the next day, uh, they, you know, what they did was Corey, they basically put together, um, a large camps in that they were able to do multiple camps stack. Like, you know, how they usually have these camps and they'll have, uh, time in between each sessions. They did four straight sessions. Uh, they got the kids in and they got them out. Uh, no one got seriously injured. Um, there was a lot of prospects there. And there was a lot of kids that were able to get opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have got before because there was a lot of uh, lower Division One, one AA, and D2 programs. Uh, so I think overall they did a great job. Uh, it'll be interesting if they'll do these type of camps in the future or if this was just a one-time thing. But it was definitely great to be back out there. Uh, it actually wasn't deadly hot in Tallahassee. And, you know, we've been out there when those <laughs> – summer days when it's been brutal but overall it's a great camp and i'm glad to uh be back on the road uh coach demo you you're, you know you were part of the creation of the satellite camps does it excite you to see that these uh mega camp type things are back in existence so where a bunch of schools can jump together and uh and see a lot of kids yeah i think the, the, the idea of the mega camps where multiple teams or programs can come and evaluate kids is great I like them better than just a one-day camp with a one organization or one team. You know, it's great to see the kids back out there. Sometimes I get worried about oversaturation, okay? 
uh, oversaturation. You still with me? And uh, I just don't want, I just don't want it to get that way, but I can see how the kids are so hungry to be back out there. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after a year off. Now I'm just kind of curious. You're, you're always known as kind of a recruiting mercenary yourself. Uh, you, you, you're at a camp with about 2,500 kids at about 60 other schools. How are you, how, how are you navigating the, the minefield there? You want the truth? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's like anything else. I already know my five kids at the 2,500. So those five kids I'm really attacking when they're there, getting to know them even more than hopefully I know them already. And then maybe identify one or two other kids. But like I said, you know, with all the coaches that are there and the more kids that are there, the more opportunities for these coaches and the, at the smaller programs and these kids, I think that's fantastic. But I should have done my homework already and have identified the top five kids in my area that I'm looking at. Hopefully they're there and then maybe find one or two others. That's basically the way it works. So the other 2,500 kids, you know, they're there trying to get themselves recognized, rightfully so, especially they haven't been out there in so long. Um, but it gives an opportunity for them to showcase their talents to some of these other schools. You know, Corey, I thought the elite level kids stood out even more. Uh, you know, when you have that many players out there, the really good ones stand out. Um, you know, there was a few kids that, uh, went to the camp. Uh, there was a kid, Brian Grant, who had was committed at Tennessee. Uh, he went out to the camp. He's from uh, Choctaw High School in Pensacola. He ended up getting an offer from Florida State. I think they wanted to see him in person. He was a former basketball player that uh, went D-end and now is going to be recruited as an offensive tackle. But the main kids that they wanted and they wanted to get a look at, they already knew who they were, and those kids stood out. I mean, there's a lot of – even though there's a lot of kids – there's a lot more bad players than good ones. So uh, the numbers, the guys that you really want, whether you're even a division two school, the ones you really want are going to stand out to you. You're not going to have to look too hard. You know, the other thing that I think is years ago, they used to throw these scholarships out right and left. I think they're going to be few and far between now between what has happened last year with the COVID and the kids getting an extra year between a transfer portal, which we'll talk about, whatever, but I really think these scholarships aren't going to be thrown around like they used to be because they're minimized. They don't have as many as they used to. They have to make really strategic uh, uh, plans on how to get these kids, you know, especially the high school kids. So I think it's going to trickle down more to the one double the FCSs and the division two. So that's why I think these camps are going to be popular. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. That's a very good point. Um, your first stop uh, on your road trip was really where you and I have kind of kicked off the camp season for almost a decade now, the seven-on-seven uh, -seven tournament at UCF. It's always a, a fun event to kind of get your feet wet. There's usually 30, 32 teams there, and they've done different things in the past, adding on to them. Uh, overall, what was your thought about the seven-on-seven? -seven? Maybe was it run a little differently with uh, Gus Malzahn there? Was it the the usual, was there anything that really stood out about the actual event itself? You know, what stood out was, you know, some of the schools that came like Tampa Plant that, you know, year in and year out, whether they went from Robert Marv to Aaron Murray to all the other quarterbacks they've always had, the talent level at that school was, it, the drop is truly amazing. I, I mean, they went from being one of the top programs in the state to basically just being another team uh, that they, they they look like one of those teams that everybody else beats up on. Vanguard showed up. Of course, uh, they look great. I think they won the whole event. 
Um, you know, they're very talented. They're one of those programs you just don't understand how they haven't won a state title because they actually have the type of players you need to get to that next level. Overall, the camp was very good. You know, Miramar was out there. I believe Booker T was out there. You had a lot of the name schools, uh, not as many top end flight top kids out there. I think because of like the Florida State camp and some of these other camps, some of the bigger programs held some of their top prospects out of that camp. Usually that UCF camps by itself or with the USF camp in that first weekend of June, hopefully they get that weekend back for themselves because it did, it took something away from the camp. The camp still was very good. Uh, the events still one of the best uh, seven on seven events. I, I really like it. It's a team event. You get to see the team event and there was uh, offense alignment out there, defense alignment too. They had the big man camp outside, but overall, the top end prospects weren't there like they were in years past. And that, that was kind of disappointing, but overall, I thought it was a great camp. Like I said, it was great to be back out there and get to see not only the coaches and players, everybody, it seemed like there was a little more uh, you know, fun this year than years past, because I just think people are tired of being stuck in their homes and not being able to get out. I think it was huge. Oh yeah, coach, coach, uh... You were a defensive backs coach for a long time. Uh, you did coach a lot of DBs. I am curious of what you get out of evaluating skeleton football, basically. I know a lot of coaches say, we don't get nothing out of seven-on-seven. Seven. Hey, if you're a line coach, you can't get squatted out of seven-on-seven. Seven. But what do you as a DBs coach, what would you look for when you're evaluating kids in seven-on-seven seven competition? Well, I'm just going to preface this by saying I'm not a big fan of seven-on-seven flag and all that other stuff. I, I, I really believe I got the most out of recruiting when I went down to Florida in the spring and watched these kids practice and then maybe go into a jamboree where it was live and pads and really see them under pressure because that's when I really want to evaluate a young man, not when he's not worried about getting hit and he, the quarterback calls all the time to throw the ball. Yeah, I can give you a bunch of reasons why, but there are some things you can identify, a kid going up and get the ball, you know, kid uh, using his hips and flipping his hips and coverage and, you know, different things you can find out about some skilled players, you know, but there's no contact, so they don't have to worry about that. The pressure really is, is on the quarterback, but it's not. So there are some things you can find out through these camps, but like Fish is saying, a lot of the great ones aren't there this past camp that he was at. So they're, they're, they're not there for a reason. They all, there's also a risk of them getting hurt. You know, very minimal, but there is a risk of that. Twisting an ankle, blowing out an ankle, something crazy. So once you get to an elite level, they're really going to minimize the places that you go because you want to make sure that your, your product that you're showing them is top notch. And I think the best way to do that is with the pads on in practice and or in games and get a great evaluation from a young man. But there, there, are, there are some benefits to seven out sevens. Here's a funny thing. We talk about the lack of contact. One of the kids that Fish and I recognized that really caught our attention back in the discipline was Nikel Roby. But that was because he was the only kid that was literally upending people at this. If you remember that, Fish, like everybody else was tagging. Every time he had a pass come his way, that kid was hitting the ground. Uh, he was special, and that you could see why he's still playing in the league. He was one of the best players I've seen at a football camp, and he wasn't well known. I remember going oh, out there, we we yeah. videotaped him, and I remember sending his stuff out, and he kind of blew up after that camp because of the video we sent out. But that, it helps those guys. Like I said, there was a kid. It does. 
uh, Tyree Patterson. There was a kid out of UCS High School that I saw at the UCF 7-on-7. This kid's going to be a big-time kid. I mean, I, I'm going to send his stuff out to schools, and once they get him on campus, I mean, UCS isn't a, a school that usually produces a lot of talent, but this is a kid that that camp benefited. I was out there. Um, I'm sure there's other people that were out there that got a chance to look at him. He's going to end up with offers. So there are guys that do benefit from these camps. And I think, you know, the, the year off, uh, the one thing that a lot of coaches said was the, once again, a lot of them said to me was the physical look of these guys a year after not getting to see them, the difference between over a year and a half ago and now was huge. And I think a lot of guys uh, ended up on recruiting boards and a lot of guys got taken off because they did, they peaked out maybe a year ago and now, uh, they're probably going to drop down a level. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think, like Demo said, I think that a lot of this, uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, lower end power, you know, uh, group of five schools benefiting from this because these colleges do want to take the transfer kids. I think you're going to see, I, Charlotte was at the uh, Florida State camp. They had five guys there. I could see that program pulling two or three kids that end up playing in the NFL one day because they got somebody at that camp that maybe one of the schools was like, oh, I'd rather have a senior or junior out of college than a high school kid. And they're like, all right, well, you know what? Let that kid come to us and we'll win a lot of ball games. Continuing on with the UCF, they've got a massive official, massive list of official visitors this week. You know, I don't even think it's arguably it's the most impressive list of visitors that school or maybe any G5 school has ever had. It's led by five-star uh, defensive end Jeremiah Alexander, 6'3", 235 out of Alabaster, Alabama. Both of you have had a chance to look at his film. Tell me what you think. Uh, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure that Gus Malzahn has been on this kid since he was a freshman and he's taken that visit, but you get five visits and UCF is getting one along with Alabama, Clemson, USC, and I think uh, Georgia. So... Tell me, uh, tell me what you think of this kid and what he could uh, – if he went to UCF, what he would do there. Well, you know, it doesn't take you long to watch his film to realize he's a five-star, I'll tell you that much. He, he's a very explosive kid. He knows how to use his hands. He knows angles. He knows leverage. He knows when to spill, when to box, uh, depending on the scheme that the team is using. He has a motor. He gets to the ball. But he, he's a typical SEC player to me. You know, and if, if Gus can get him at UCF, that's a great get. But I think he could end up at one of these other SEC schools because that's what they look like coming out of high school, and that's what they look like when they play in the SEC. But I think he's got a great future. I, I know he's about 6'3". What'd you say, Corey? How much does he weigh? 235. 235. So he, he's an ideal player at the position he's playing. He, he plays a little bit inside backer. He comes off the edge a lot. He knows when to squeeze it down a level. When the, when the tackle disappears, no one is supposed to spill. Like I said, these are well-rounded, pretty good football player. And whoever gets him is going to get a great player. You know, I think as a defensive coordinator, this is a defensive coordinator, coordinator's dream. Um, this kid's just special. I, you know, you look at guys like Von Miller, um, I would assume that's what kind of he looked like coming out of high school. The ability to put the pressure on the quarterback – uh, he could come off the strong side, weak side. You could play him at outside linebacker. You could move him inside to middle linebacker. He's so versatile. 
and his ability and his range and what he can do and how well he runs uh, as a defensive coordinator. This is a dream type player. Uh, if UCF can land a kid like this, you could do a lot on that side of the ball to, you know, fix problems. We talked about it on the back end. This is a, this guy makes your secondary look a lot better because he gets off the ball so quick. He gives the quarterback one second less to get the ball off. And I mean, I haven't seen too many guys and this is a great year for defensive ends. This is about a, as explosive as, as I've seen come off the ball of any prospect I've watched their film on. And if you could see why he's a five-star on the networks, he's a no brainer. And uh, whoever gets this kid's getting a Sunday player, not a Saturday player. You know, Corey, to add what you're asking me about the seven-on-seven, seven, I mean, this kid could shine in the seven-on-seven, seven, but, man, you put that film on with the pads on, he really shines. And the one thing I try to tell young players is what he understands is how to use their hands. From a defensive standpoint, it's so critically important that a young defender uses his hands and understands how to use his hands to get off blocks, to get to the ball, et cetera. And this is one thing this young man does. I mean, Dima, you, you had guys like Peter Bowler, Raynor Wilson that, that were able to bend and get so low they could, they could get that leverage on an offensive tackle where they can't get that low. And then they're all of a sudden they pop up and they're on top of the quarterback almost like a, a, they're so quick and explosive. And that's what I saw with this kid is that ability. To, he literally will force a tackle to do things that they're not comfortable doing. I mean, they're not, they're, you know, he's going to play to his strength and, and go attack their weaknesses off the edge. And honestly, these are the type of guys as a coach, a recruiter, you want to land these guys because they change everything you do on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. I had the pleasure to be around guys like Jamal Reynolds and David Warren. And what made them so special is you're right fish. They can bend because the bigger tackles they get now, they're all six, six, three and a pound tackles. You get these ends that are, you know, 6'4", 250, but could come off the edge and bend almost all the way to the ground and understand how to use their hands, they're hard to block, man, no matter how big and, and special those offensive tackles are. So you're absolutely right. All right, Coach Demo. You're, used, you're, 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 the primary, you're the primary recruiting coach for this kid. You're going up against Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, USC. What's your pitch this weekend? Well, you just got to build a relationship with him. I'm sure Gus has done that. Like you said, I'm sure it's through his Auburn days. And he knows that kid extremely well. So you just got to tell the kid, hey, listen, you have an opportunity to do something special here at UCF. Um, you can come in here and be a dominant player, just like you would be anywhere else. Okay. But you still have a chance to go to the NFL, whether you play here or somewhere else. We're going to provide you great coaching, great opportunity to get your degree. You're going to have all the resources around you to be successful. This is just as good a place as anywhere else in the country. And that's why we want you on this visit to check it out and compare it to these other visits you go to. And then you just got to stay real with them. And if you do, there's a good chance you can get them. All right. We're, uh, I don't want to go too long in this segment, but real quickly, Best Mile's not bringing in this, you know, this great group of visitors. Obviously, he could take the recruiting up at UCF a notch. And can UCF get a top 25 recruiting class under Gus Malzahn? Real quickly, yes or no? Both no doubt. No question in my mind. Absolutely. All right. We'll be back with more of the Fishcast.
Chris Cast. We're gonna get into a little bit of fun discussion here right now as our good friend Pete Fornelli um, from CBS Sports wrote he uh, he ranked excuse me Tom Fornelli of CBS Sports he ranked the 65 best Power Five coaches from 65 to one. We're gonna kind of pick and choose, mostly dealing with the uh, in-state ones, but we'll first start it off by saying. Number 65 is Shane Beamer. I don't, I don't think that's totally fair, but as uh, what Tom says is that generally because he doesn't have any experience as a coordinator, that kind of puts them, that kind of puts them at the back of the line compared to the other newcomers. But scrolling down, our first one we're going to get to of the in-state ones, Mike Norvell comes in at number 44. He was at number 29 last year when he took over the job, and the um, the, the blurb on him is that. Norvell fell further than any other coach, which was something of a surprise. I think it's a little bit of course correction, as we might have all been a little too high on him to start last year. It was one of the biggest hires of last offseason, and that no doubt impacted the voting. Then a 3-6 and six start in Tallahassee sobered everyone up a bit. Like I said with Scott Satterfield, recency bias plays a big role in this area of the rankings. And like I said, he was 29th last year. He's at 44th. I kind of think that's a lot fair. That's probably where I would have put him. If I were ranking these last year, I'd have probably put him in the 40s and not that hot, not, you know, in the top half of the Power Five coaches. Because he never done it before. He never, you know, I don't know how you can be a top five Power Five coach if you've never actually coached a game in the Power Five before. But I do think, you know, I think he's, I think, I think it's a fair area for him. I think there's still a lot to prove with him. I think that was proven last year is that what you do in the AAC doesn't always carry over. So there's still some things he's got to do. We've had him on the show. You just want to just can't. He seems to be doing the right things in terms of getting top-level recruits excited about the program. But at the end of the day, you're only judged by wins and losses. You're not judged by any other aspect of what you do. So your thoughts on Norvell and his ranking, is that fair, a little too high, a little too low? Where are you at with it? Oh, where where did Scott Frost fall to? Where's he at? Oh, we'll get to. I don't. I don't let me see. We'll get to Scott. Uh, let me no, see. the reason I say is, you know, it's it's funny. Scott is at forty-seven. Scott All is right. at forty-seven. All right. Two years ago, Scott Frost was the hottest commodity in, in college football, and yeah. you know, I don't think he forgot how to coach. I don't think he forgot how to recruit. Uh, it's just amazing to me how, you know, one season. And now these guys all of a sudden become bad or good coaches. Um, Chris, I don't, I don't think people understand how bad some of these programs are when these guys take them over. Exactly. I, some, some, some people destroy programs. They truly, honestly do. Yeah, yeah. And then when the other guy comes in, that's pretty good. It's going to take him a while. There's no question. And I, I just think that the newcomers on this list, it's kind of, you know, you talk about how he was ranked in the 20s, and I think that's unfair at that point because he came into a program. Every program's different. Um, some are in good shape when they take over. Most programs, when a coach gets fired, especially a year and a half uh, into their tenure, that situation isn't going to be good. So I, I don't know how you quantify a coach and how they're ranked based off of the program they take over. Some guys, like I said, Mario took over a program at Oregon that was in pretty good shape when he took over. So then he has a 10 win season. All right. Well now he's a top 10 or 15 coach. It's, it all depends on where you go. 
Um, well, the irony with that is that Mario took over the same pro from program with the same coach that Mike Morfell took over. There, there's so, no doubt, but that's what I'm saying. Like each situation is totally different. Well, Oregon was not in a good situation when Willie Taggart got there. No, but, but he he improved the situation, but yeah. it's also FSU. We've talked about this. One of the problems that FSU's had, and it, it's not an excuse, it's reality, is two transition classes in three years. You're basically have you could throw those first year classes out for Willie, and you could throw that first year class out for tag i mean uh for norvell so you go to a school like florida state and you saw what happened at tennessee when they had multiple coaches in multiple years the recruiting and the players that are left behind and what's you know they they now have um are are not to the level of that program so those coaches do need time i do think that they could we've discussed this before they could have done a lot of things better i'm sure coach norvell could tell you the same thing that they could have done a lot of things better uh, they probably thought the program was in better shape when they took over than it actually was. But when you're ranking these guys, <coughs> I think outside of the guys that are established, it's really difficult to go, all right, well, these are the guys, and this is how we're going to rank them until there's more than one year of a uh, resume on them. You know, I, I had the fortunate opportunity to work for Coach Bowden of Florida State, and there's a thing called longevity that doesn't exist anymore. And back then, Coach Bowden had to earn every penny he got. You know, the salary that he got as he increased towards the end of his, his career was pretty good, but he had to earn all that. And I got to him at the end of his career when he was blossoming. We were winning games like crazy. So, you know, I wasn't with him in his early career, maybe at West Virginia or his early on years at Florida State when he was trying to make something happen. And a lot of these guys are in that situation right now, but what's driving it is the money. The money that they're getting is outrageously ridiculous. So what they're saying to him is, you better win now. Here's the money. Okay, you want it. Here it is. You're at, a, you're at a Power 5 university. Here's the money. Win now. We don't have time for you to build a program. We want it right now. And some of these other guys are shrewd and rude and know how to do it. But these, the, one, the ones we're talking about don't. And I believe, you know, Nor Coach Norvell fits right into that. He's at a place where he got it, he got it raised. He got an upper, upper echelon program and a Power 5 from Memphis. Hey, man, let's go. You know, we, we give you a year, but let's go. Yeah. And I think that's where it fits in. But Dima, the one thing is, and you, you go back to looking at Bobby Bowden, you look at uh, even Frank Beamer. Frank Beamer, I think it was his fifth or sixth or maybe even seventh season that they he finally broke through. They wanted to fire these guys early on at, yes, those, pro, at those programs. Today, the expectations are now. And I think right. the one thing is, is that, and I've said this, Florida State fans have been very spoiled. They had Bobby Bowden who came in and he had a ton of success all over a long period of time. They'd never had those down years under Bobby. I mean, the worst season Bobby had was his final season. They went six and six. They still beat a very good West Virginia team. Then all of a sudden Jimbo comes in and he wins a national title. So the fan base and the people in that program are like, oh, anybody could coach here and this no. program will survive any coach they bring in. And whoever, it was that same mentality Jerry Jones had when he lost Jimmy you Johnson as that – Oh, 
anybody could do this if we use the same formula and it doesn't work that way they work were that they've been very fortunate and then all of a sudden you have those down years that the fans and everybody aren't used to and all of a sudden you panic you make one bad decision after another and it's not even just the head coach you hire other people in that program that are bad for that program too and it it it, it it ends up where Florida State is now. So when we're evaluating these guys, and I don't know what this list, you know, Corey's going to go over some of the other guys. Outside of the top 10 or 15, you're basically, most of these guys are probably pretty good coaches. It's just a situation that they're in, whether they're having success or not. Agreed. And I know, <clears throat> I look at the Beamer kid that just took over South Carolina. He comes from great pedigree. So, and he might be his first year head coach. So it's going to be a wait and see with him. But he understands. He worked for his father. He watched his father for a long time. And I got a neat story about Coach Beamer. When I was getting recruited out of high school, I visited Murray State. And who was sitting across from the desk that offered me a scholarship was Coach Beamer. He was at Murray State, just like Coach Baden was at West Virginia. And then I didn't take the scholarship. I ended up going to another school. But then Coach Beamer ended up at Virginia Tech. But that's why I say, man, you just don't know about these coaches. Everybody gets an opportunity, but it's what they do when they get that opportunity is how well they're going to be. Well, and I think uh, that's what's happening. That's why, oh, Beamer, 65. It's a wait and see. But I really believe he's got something at South Carolina. Beamer, what's crazy, it used to be, oh, if you weren't an OC or a DC, you couldn't get hired a head coach. Beamer, you're talking about Beamer's son. That's he's right. never been a coordinator. You look at Dallas Sweeney, never been a coordinator. You look Correct. at Mario, never been a coordinator. So now all of a sudden, people are like, wait a second. It's it's like the money ball example. Like <laughs> there is no perfect way of figuring this out. It's one, you know, we, we spoke to it's Tom the Allen. Dude, man. Yeah, we spoke to Tom Allen last week. And until he got on this show, I had no idea he had that type of energy and he was that type of person. And I'm like, once you get to know somebody, you could kind of figure out if this guy's going to have success or not. So you there's really no formula in figuring this out. It's just a lot of times it's rolling the dice and going, all right, you know what? This is our guy. But you also need the uh, pro. You got to have the people in the program back you. We Tom Allen talked about it. He said all they cared about at Indiana was basketball. And he made them care about football, that they improved the facilities. They improved the coaching staff under them and they gave more money. And you know what? Look, the money paid off. The more money they spent, the more they won. And it shows you that if you're committed from top to bottom, from the administration down to the last little GA that's on the coaching staff, that's grabbing water for the coaches and the players, you can win a lot of ball games if you have the support. And that's what you need at these programs. Fish, you know what? When you hire people, they have to have your vision. There's no doubt about it. They have to have your vision, but they better be able to coach, man. When they get on that field, they better be able to coach and they better and be able to recruit. If they, they can they, coach and recruit, they can still be your friend. If they can do both of that, great. But if they can't, then you're only asking for a problem. Moving on to the next, uh, next name on the list. Uh, Manny Diaz moved up 26 spots to number 32 this year. Uh, the, the blurb on him was, I cannot say I saw Diaz being tied for the biggest climb in the rankings. Don't get me wrong, I think Miami's 8-3 season was a rousing success and a great second season for Diaz. There are also reasons for optimism heading into 2021. Still a 26-spot jump seems extreme. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but still, I, I, I don't think it's extreme given what he did and where I think we both think the Hurricane, we all think the Hurricanes are headed this year. Um, 
I feel like this is going to be Manny's last year outside of the top 25, really. I think what he, the way he's recruiting, the way they seem to – the way they, way he seems to work the roster, the fact that he is bringing – you know, he continues to bring in good coaches. I like what he's doing at Miami. I think I think 32 might even be a little low for him right now. What do you guys you know, think? Corey, some coaches have a ceiling. No matter what they think, they have a ceiling. Some coaches don't. They can just keep going and going and going. And Manny could be one of those guys. You know, he's not afraid to make decisions, hard ones. He got rid of coaches after coaches after coaches, brought other coaches in to better his program and to better himself. And that's what he's done. And he's got, continues to do well in recruiting. So when it's all said and done, the people that are around you are going to make you great. You, they bring in great players, he's going to be great. They bring in that quarterback king like they did, he's going to be great. They have coaches around him that can recruit and coach, he's going to be great. And he's figuring that out. And I think he's not afraid to make tough decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you talk about it. The one thing Manny's done great is, you know, he he had uh, Dan Enos on his staff. You know, he hired him. He had a lot of – he came from Alabama. And it wasn't the right fit. And he didn't try to make it the right fit. He said, you know what, this didn't work. I'm going to go out. He made a change right away. And I think that says something about him as a coach. Yes, it does. Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson did that his first year. He, ha- he struggled at University of Miami. Those guys didn't fit his vision. The defensive coaching staff, he wiped it out. He brought in his 4-3. He ran his cover two. He did his thing. He's like, this is a scheme that's going to work at University of Miami. Manny did the same thing. And, and you have to give him credit. As, at every point of his coaching career, he's adapted so far as a head coach. He took advantage of the portal. He didn't oversign. He got the guys that were the best players at those positions and brought them in, and they made an impact. He's brought, he brought in a Rhett Lashley, and he's bringing in guys that aren't buddies of him. He doesn't know these guys other than probably somebody's recommended him. You know, most of these coaches, they favor buddies, and that's, you know, that's a good thing that he's done that. Now, you want some guys that are on your side because when, when you want to uh, – you have down moments, you want guys that have that same vision and everything that you have, but sometimes you got to take chances, and he took a chance on a Rhett Lashley. He was able to get a T-Rob who – uh, wasn't in his coaching um, circle this year. He's upgraded at every step. And you look at the roster, they've improved. That roster's improved. The depth's improved. And De'Aaron King is a big reason, too, while, why Manny's jumped that high, too. Let's not kid ourselves. We talked about it. I remember talking to Manny as we were walking off one of the only practices last year during spring, and Manny had a smile on his face. De'Aaron King changed everything in that program. It changed everything it changed the momentum of that program the and and they now are a legitimate team to contend not only in the acc but nationally in the national championship picture now moving moving all the way up to number 10 is where we find dan mullen he dropped a couple spots from where he was last year which was eight he dropped a couple spots because matt campbell who finished ninth and pat's for sure pat Fitzgerald finished eighth moved up they had big jumps so it really wasn't so anything he did, the blurb on him, uh, more or less, was that while an eight and four record in 2020 was the worst of Mullen's three seasons in Gainesville, you can easily argue it was his best season with the Gators. Um, and they, they said they're willing to go out on a limb and say that if the Florida, if Florida win the East again, Mullen will rise quite a bit and possibly into the top five. Now. I think ten is. I think I think Dan Mullen is a top ten coach. I think he's on the back end of top ten. So I think it's a fair ranking. I think you could put him anywhere from eight to ten and feel like I think you know. I think he's 
established between what he did at Mississippi State and what he's done in Florida. He's a top 10 coach. Um, you know, fans will argue whether or not he's a championship coach, but I think we can all feel confident that he's a top 10 coach, right? Well, you know what, Corey? A lot of times when these guys take their, these jobs, they're not themselves. It takes them a year or two to get comfortable in that seat, and all of a sudden they start being themselves, and all of a sudden you see the level of their players and the level of their coaching and staff, et cetera, raised to a whole nother level because they're there to try to please this person and do this and do that when all they want to do is coach football. They're not worried about all that other stuff. So once they get comfortable figuring all that other stuff out and who's this, who does this, and who does that, okay, now I can be relaxed and get on the field and do what I really love to do as coach, and I really think that's what Mullins does. You know, before I get to Dan Mullen, you brought up one name, Pat Fitzgerald. And, and from a selfish standpoint in college football, I would love to see what he could do at a bigger program at like a USC or, or a Florida State or a Miami. I think Pat Fitzgerald's one of the best coaches in college football. I, I put him in the top two or three, maybe no lower than top five, because Northwestern's probably the hardest job in college football to win at. I, I mean, their facilities are unreal now, but they're if you ever go to Northwestern, their kids do not look like anyone in the SEC. They are winning with guys that they're developing, and what he's done there is truly remarkable and probably will never be duplicated. Now, as far as Dan Mullen, um, I don't know. I'm a lot higher on Dan Mullen. I think he is a, a, one of the top coaches in college football. Everybody, their, their only way of judging guys now is, oh, if you win a national title or bust. And I just think it's just, it's not, there's only a handful of coaches that have won national titles. I think that right now, active, there may be four or five that have won a national title. You have uh, Jimbo, you have Saban, um, you have, I, there's a couple other coaches at Orgeron, but there's not many of them. So to sit there Dabo, and, and Davo, so you, there's not a whole lot of them. And there's not a whole lot that have played in these title games. You know, you look at, uh, you know, the guy at Ohio State, he's had, he had the opportunity to take over a great program. You really think if he had taken over uh, a, a lesser program, like in Indiana, we were talking with Tom Allen last week, that he would have done what he did? Probably not. So I just think Dan Mullen, you know, he's a different type of bird. We know that, I, you know, recruiting, he's more into the, I think, the development side than to actually you know, go head to head. He's not going to go head to head with Alabama and take a lot of those guys. But overall, I think they've done a great job there with what they've done. And, and I don't think you can argue with, with his success. He had a ton of success at Mississippi State. He's had a lot of success at Florida. The only thing that he hasn't done is I don't believe he's won the SEC yet and he hasn't won a national title. And he's in a conference with Alabama. So pretty much every other school and coach, you could say the same thing about. Well, first things first, you have to be real, right? But you have to understand this. What works at one place for you might not necessarily work at another place for you. I can say that for sure because I've seen it happen many, many times, you know. And what you have to realize when these guys are coming up and are at these smaller schools, nobody's looking. Nobody's looking. They're just seeing the accolades that these guys are getting. All of a sudden, they get themselves in a position where they're at a school where everybody's looking. Now it's a different ball game. So they have to be extremely good at adapting where they are and the situation that they're in. And that's why I look at Mario and say, holy smokes, the guy's from Miami and he's out of Oregon making it happen. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. I, you know, when I look at, I mean, I, I look at it's, it's, you know, like you said, 
the one the things that Mullen hasn't done yet, he hadn't won the conference, he hadn't been to the playoff, he hadn't won a national title. And that, you know, and again, you know, that, that should be everything that the Duck is coaching on. But of course, he's at a program where they judge everything on how many conferences and national titles you win. So, you know, where you're at, the program that you're at does determine a lot of things. Running through the rest of the list, like like we said, we had Campbell at nine, Fitzgerald at eight, Kirby Smart at seven, Jimbo Fisher at six, Brian Kelly at five, Ryan Day at four, Lincoln Riley at three, Dabo Sweeney at two, and of course Nick Saban at one. Um, I I got my own opinions on this. I'll, I'll let you guys start. Anything stick out to you about the, those final names on that list? I mean. I think, I, mean, I think the number one is fine with me. I mean, I, yeah, one, or, safe, but yeah, one, and, one and two are fine. I think Jimbo's the, the third best coach in college football. Uh, if anybody wants to argue, go ahead. I mean, he won a national title at Florida State. He rebuilt that program. He's rebuilt Texas and A&M. You look at the recruiting he's doing there now. If you think he's not going to take that team to the playoffs or, or take them to another level, you're insane what he's done. He's, he's established himself as a top three coach in college football. After that, we can, we can all be right. You know, we can, right. we, we can put a bunch of names uh, in the hopper and basically just grab them out and be right on it. So right. uh, here's what I say, fish. It's all about results. You have to get results yeah. and you have to be consistent in getting results wherever you are. And that does explain what Jimbo's doing. No doubt about it. I look at it like I, I, I kind of I agree in a sense the way I would put I couldn't put Lincoln Riley or a Ryan Day ahead of Jimbo Fisher or Brian Kelly for that matter. I think they're both better coaches. I, I think Lincoln Riley is a I think he's a very good coach. I know Fish, you know, you were pretty much one of the first guys that jumped on the Lincoln Riley train. I, I think three is a little high just because I, I want to see I, I, and you told me we were going to see different things out of Oklahoma and maybe we'll see them this year but you know up until this point they they to me were a school that they've been a program that's won a pretty easy conference you know texas hasn't been particularly competitive and then they've gotten absolutely they've gotten absolutely smashed in playoff games where they like they just have been non-competitive I, I look at lincoln riley and what he's done at oklahoma and and you could go back to tom osborne and what happened at nebraska Nebraska used to go into those games the same way. They'd come in undefeated. Uh, maybe they shouldn't have been there. They'd get blown out. Tom Osborne figured it out. Like, all right, we've got to get a certain level kid. I remember going to the Oklahoma-Alabama game a couple of years ago, and Kyle Murray was the quarterback. Oklahoma looked so small compared to Alabama. Like, you knew before the game started who was going to win just by looking at the two teams. So, Coaching really doesn't matter. I think Lincoln has maxed out what he's going to do at Oklahoma till he gets that next level kid. He'll com he'll continue to make the playoffs, but for him to beat Alabama, to hit for him, he's got to land those big time. I mean, there's not a lot of Gerald McCoys at Oklahoma right now. Those first round picks, they don't have a lot of those guys up front on the old line and D line. When they start to get bigger and faster on that's on the, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And I think the gaps closed. You've seen, he hired Alex Ginnish, uh, Greenwich, who I think is one of the best defensive coordinators in college football. They've improved the talent on defense, but the, once you get into that national championship game, it's about talent at that point, 
the team that's going to win 99% of the time is the team that has more talent. You may get lucky one out of 10 times, but most of the times the team with the most talent in that final four is going to win. And that's what Lincoln's has done a phenomenal job at Oklahoma, but for him to get over the hump, that talent has to go from being really good to being great, or he's going to continue to make the playoffs and get blown out. And his coaching doesn't matter. He's a great coach. It doesn't, you could, you put him at Alabama and you put Saban at, at, at Oklahoma. I think you would have the same results. I really do. And it's not, and as great as Saban is, it's the talent level between the two programs, especially two years ago was, you could see it right when the two teams walked on the field. There was no comparison between the two teams. And that's why I'm so high on Brian Kelly. Cause I feel like, like, I feel like with Brian Kelly, a coach like that, we talk about coaches with ceilings, but Brian Kelly, I think there's such a high floor. It's like I could put Brian Kelly at any top. I put Brian Kelly at Texas. He struggled forever. He's going to come in first year. They're going to go nine and three minimum. Like, because I feel like he's just that good a coach. He understands the, he understands the dichotomy of how to win a football game. You know, I mean, so, and, you know, sometimes you just don't have the talent. You know, sometimes when you're playing Clemson, when you're playing Alabama, like you said, he doesn't always have, he doesn't have the talent to match up to those guys. But week in and week out, I believe that the teams that he puts out on the field, they know exactly what they have to do to give themselves the best chance to win. I agree with you. And this is not a knock against Coach Norvell. But if I was Florida State, I would open the bank to get that guy. And maybe they did. Maybe they did. We don't know about it. But that guy, you're right, Corey, he's a hot ticket no matter where he goes. He's going to win nine, ten games first year, guaranteed. Yeah, I I think Brian Kelly – all right, you look at the guys that won the national championship. He's in that. He's the top of the list of that next group of guys that haven't won it. I mean, if you put him at Ohio State, honestly, he'd have as many rings, I believe, as Saban. I, I really, truly believe, or close to it, by the time he's done with his career, he'd he'd win at least three or four national titles at Ohio State. And it's not a knock at the other guys that have been there. He's he's an elite coach. I mean, Notre Dame. What he's done there with the restriction, I don't think people realize they are not recruiting the same kids Alabama's recruiting. They're not recruiting nope. the same kids Ohio State's recruiting. Notre Dame is a very, very difficult school to win at. Lou Holtz changed the rules, and the one year he changed them, they won, and they haven't gone back to that since. And there's a reason nope. why they haven't won a national title since 1992 or whatever it is, or, or even been close in those games. Uh, the fact that he's gotten the team now and the playoffs are consistently uh, a playoff team or close to a playoff team. Uh, he's done a phenomenal job. He's another guy that they talk about. How do you know if a guy's a good coach, they hire great coaches. He just hired Marcus Freeman, the defensive coordinator for Cincinnati, that his last head uh, defensive coordinator ended up the head coach of Vanderbilt. These guys that he keeps bringing in are going to be head coaches after one after another. And, and like Demo said, can you imagine him at USC after this year? I'm telling you, USC will win a national title within the first two or three years that he's there. It won't be long. He'll go in there, he'll bring his players in there, and he'll finally have the athletes to go against the better programs. And you got to understand a guy like his journey. He, he doesn't land on a job like some of these spoiled guys do. His journey was Grand Valley State, Division II champions. They're still a force to be reckoned with at Division II. Then he went on to say Cincinnati or one of the smaller schools out there in uh, Mac. Then he goes on to um, Cincinnati. Then he goes. So the guy's pedigree and where he's been 
and what he's done, to, his journey to get him where he is, that's why I believe he's as good as he is. Yeah, had a 12 and 0, had an undefeated season at Cincinnati, at least going into a bowl game. They were undefeated. And, yep. you know, uh, he's, had a, he's played a national title game and had two other playoff appearances at Notre Dame since 2012. I just, I mean, there's just there's few guys that are, few guys that are better than him and few <laughs> guys that are better than you. And with that, we're going to close out this uh, shortened edition of the Fish Cast, getting some things going. Uh, we got a lot to talk about next time. So we'll, we'll be back to you real soon. Until then, make sure you subscribe and download, and please give us a five-star rating if you are so inclined to do that. If you don't give us a five-star rating, Charles is going to come over there, and he's going to be a baseball dad in your house. And you're not going to like that. Yeah. yeah, I hope everybody stays tuned because, like I said, I believe we have some good guests. Uh, coming on in the future a lot of great things coming to the fish cast and this wouldn't be wouldn't be possible without you guys so have a great weekend same to you be good guys